Welcome. This is the podcast from Madison's First Baptist Church. I'm Dr. Chuck McGathy, and this is the podcast of the worship service that will be uh, given, the message that will be given, rather, on Transfiguration Sunday, February 19th, 2023. The first passage of Scripture that I'll be reading from is not actually found in the New Testament, but from the Old Testament. I'm going to show, I hope, how these two ideas are connected. So the first passage of Scripture this morning comes from Exodus, the 24th chapter, verses 12 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, Come to me on the mountain. I have written my teachings and laws on two stone tablets. These teachings and laws are for the people. I will give these stone tablets to you. So Moses and his helper Joshua went up the mountain of God. Moses said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. While I am gone, Aaron and her will rule over you. Go to them if anyone has a problem. Then Moses went up the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord came down on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered the mountain for six days. On the seventh day, the Lord spoke to Moses from the cloud. The Israelites could see the glory of the Lord. It was like a burning fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses went higher up the mountain into the cloud. He was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. The nature of our faith is certainly based on evidence, yet there must also be a mystery too. We can absolutely have faith, but it also remains a bit cloudy faith. And this day is one where we consider the implications of our faith, even when our vision is still a bit limited. This Sunday, there are two lessons from the scriptures. These two lessons are taken from a systematic plan of Bible reading that guides a congregation over the course of three years through the church seasons, highlighting every major theme of scripture and using almost the entirety of the Bible in the process. Today, Transfiguration Sunday is an excellent example of how this works. You see, the pastors and theologians who come together to determine the lectionary are convinced that the Bible is a unified message. Although it is composed of many books by many authors, the Holy Spirit has inspired a continuous message to flow from Genesis to the Revelation of John. This week, I hope you will see the connectivity that exists linking the four passages selected for consideration. Today we are looking closely at two of these. The first has already been read from the Old Testament book of Exodus. The second is from the New Testament book of Matthew. It is from Matthew 17 verses 1 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and went up a high mountain. They were all alone there. While these followers watched him, Jesus was changed. His face became bright like the sun and his clothes became white as light. 
The two men were there talking with him. They were Moses and Elijah. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you want, I will put three tents here, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. While Peter was talking, a bright cloud came over them. A voice came from the cloud and said, this is my son, the one I love. I am very pleased with him. Obey him. The followers of Jesus heard his voice. They were very afraid, so they fell to the ground. But Jesus came to them and touched them, and he said, Stand up, don't be afraid. The followers looked up, and they saw that Jesus was now alone. As Jesus and the followers were coming down the mountain, he gave them this command. Don't tell anyone about what you saw on the mountain. Wait until the Son of Man has been raised from death. Then you can tell people what you saw. After reading the scripture lessons on Sunday afternoon, I being rather tired and going to bed early in the evening, I knew that I would, as I have so often done before, start pondering throughout the night the meaning of the written word as well as what it might mean to us. And it was there in the wee early hours of Monday morning that a certain aspect of these passages leapt out and grabbed my spiritual attention. It was then, following that thought, I was reminded of something that happened to me a long time ago. I had to go on an early morning drive along the Pacific Ocean coast. I had left early in the morning, long before sunrise. Some of you have been there and driven this route, and you can visualize the unique and spectacular geography of that area. To my left was the vast, green, and cold Pacific Ocean. To my right were towering mountains, the coastal range that runs from north to south through most of California. Further to the right, moving toward the east, lay the western reaches of the Sonoran Desert. It is the deserts that give California its name, which in Spanish is translated furnace. Because of this combination of hot and cold, there is a potential for thick fog to develop. Typically, the fog bank sinks about a half a mile from the shore like a great wall and can remain there for a long time, sometimes exceeding the lunch hour. But on certain occasions, when conditions are just right, the fog bank moves further east and can envelop the coastal highway. When that happens, travel becomes treacherous. Such were the conditions the day I left on my errand to the north. I had driven through fog many times before, and I knew how to be careful. I slowed down the rate of my travel, but I did not stop or make any sudden changes of lane. I would try to find someone who was traveling the speed I determined to be safe, fall in behind them and stay in view of their taillights. Also, I would ensure that my headlights were on, but not bright because uh, I would be further blinded by the fog. If conditions were difficult, particularly, I would turn off any music playing on the radio so that I might tune my ears to hear any unusual sounds like screeching tires or crumpling metal. Before too long, I realized that this was a fog like no other fog I had ever been in before. Eventually, I lost sight of the taillights ahead of me. The fog was just too thick. It was so thick, in fact, that I could not see anything. It was as if I had driven into a cloud. 
I began to lose my orientation. I couldn't stop for fear that someone would run into my rear. I could not see the exit so that I might pull off. And I certainly could not speed up into the unknown. Though I was disoriented, I also felt that God was with me. And so I prayed. And I mean really fervently that he would keep me and the other travelers safe as we navigated our way through the milky unknown. After what seemed like an eternity, the fog began to lift, and as it did, I began to reflect. I thought about my life and the journey that had brought me to this moment. I thought about my dependency upon God and how much of my life had changed because I had journeyed spiritually through a great unknowing haze. I thought on that classic work of Christian mysticism, the great cloud of unknowing which proposed that the only way to truly know God is to abandon all preconceived notions and beliefs or knowledge about God and be courageous enough to surrender your mind and ego to the realm of unknowingness, at which point you begin to glimpse the true nature of God. Things have been going good for me, and I was looking forward to the good things that God was going to do in the future. And yet, I had to admit that unless I had gone into that cloud of unknowing and found God there, I could never experience the hope and purpose that filled my life anew. Here in these scriptures, we have two separate stories that are connected by a cloud. In the first story, we see Moses accompanied by his friend and colleague Joshua. Together they ascend the mountain where they know they will meet God. At the top of the mountain is a cloud. Moses moves into the cloud and there he encounters the living God. In the second story, it is Jesus who along with three of his disciples ascends another mountain. Again with almost Eerie similarity, a cloud moves in and envelops them all. Peter, James, and John sense God's holy presence in this moment and offer to create shelters for Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. Perhaps it had dawned upon them that the last time Moses was in a cloud high on a mountain, he remained there for 40 days. The number 40 used in Scripture frequently refers to personal to a personal and intense time of spiritual reflection. The transfiguration does not take 40 days, but Jesus had spent 40 days in the wilderness before that. It is these two experiences, and particularly what Moses and the disciples knew once they left the cloud, that connects the stories and the entire biblical narrative in a remarkable way. First, let's consider Moses. The Exodus passage both recalls and anticipates the entire biblical drama. Listen once again to the crucial moment. Then Moses went up the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord came down on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered the mountain for six days. On the seventh day, the Lord spoke to Moses from the cloud. The Israelites could see the glory of the Lord. It was like a fire burning on top of the mountain. Then Moses went higher up the mountain into the cloud. He was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Please notice two important facts. 
The first I've already mentioned. Moses goes into a cloud to hear a word from God. The second looks backward to another moment where God spoke powerfully to humanity. It was a great reorganizing moment, a moment of clarity, a moment to come out of the fog. In the final line, it states that Moses remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Hmm. Where else have we heard that before? Do you recall the story of Noah? He enters the ark. The world he knows is ending. God is creating a new one. It rains and the earth floods for 40 days and 40 nights. Then once again, we can look forward in Scripture as Jesus goes into the wilderness and remains there for 40 days. On the other side, he knows who he is and begins the gospel ministry. As Moses ascends into the cloud, he is leaving behind one world so that he might hear from God and begin a new experience, a deepened experience with God, not only for himself, but also for his people. It is in many ways a moment not unlike that of his predecessor, Noah, who ex exited the ark to discover the world had changed. Yet God remained the same and walked with him still and would show him the way. As Moses descends from the mountain, he brings to the people not only the Ten Commandments with which we are so well familiar, but also the rest of the law detailing the ritual acts that will be expected of God's people. The law was, in fact, a gift to the Hebrews who until recently had lived in Egypt. The rules for living have been different in that place. God was offering to them a new relationship with him and with other people. Read the Ten Commandments in that light and you will discover how it was that God wanted his people to be different from the culture that had molded and enslaved them. For example, consider the very first commandment. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What I want you to see here is that this commandment, along with all the others, did not just materialize out of the ether. God was correcting the beliefs and the behavior of his people. These ideas to them were startling. They needed to adjust as they turned away from old practices and conventions to embrace a brand new reality. In order to give them time, they would wander in the wilderness for, you guessed it, 40 years until they were ready to move into another place of their national story. When Moses came down from the mountain, he gave to the people the law. The law was a way to understand and know God, but it was limited. It could not complete the task. If I may paraphrase Paul here, the law showed us our inadequacy. But what we ultimately needed was grace. And that brings us to the last mountain. Out of that cloud, the voice of God is heard. This time he is speaking to the disciples. And whenever he speaks to the disciples, he is also speaking to us. Referring to Jesus, this is what God says. This is my son, the one I love. I am very pleased with him. Obey him. This is not so much the eradication of the law, 
but the fulfillment of it. In Jesus, we understand who God is, what he is doing and what he wants us to do. That is why the followers of Jesus Christ depend upon him to enlighten us and guide us through the confusion and the haze that so often beset us. These are transfiguration moments when we see God more clearly and as a result express him more clearly to others. And these moments are not confined to a few biblical examples, but occur over and over again in the lives of the followers of Jesus. (coughs) I've come to believe that we are in a transitional and yes, a transformational moment in church history. For many thoughtful Christians, the declining years of the 20th century and the opening of the 21st century have seemed like a great fog. While we feel the presence of Christ, we are unsure of our way. A confused cacophony of voices surround and distract us and cause us to feel as if we are in great danger and peril, but have faith. We have gone through this before and we will come out of it just fine. One theologian mused about traveling back in time. He expressed it this way. Time machine travel would reveal the state of Christianity to be unbelievably good in 1956. The 1950s revival of religion in general was one of the dominating features of the domestic situation in America at this time. Church membership rose steadily five percentage points annually. During the early part of the decade, two years before, Congress added the words under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. The words in God we trust were officially adopted as the national motto in 1956. Corporations and civic organizations decided that providing outlets for prayer made good business sense. Church building boomed. Religious book sales soared. Television and propaganda Television, the propaganda potential of which people were only beginning to realize, spread religious images far and wide. Billy Graham's urban crusades were packed with people, and he became America's most well-known religious figure for the next several decades. By the end of the 1950s, nearly 69% of Americans were church members. The trend was very good for the church, and it looked like the whole population would be attending church by the 19th. 1970s, what happened? That was the reality many of us can remember and all of us have been inheritors of. And we understandably longed for the good old days. But when one of our best, histor- but when one of our best historical thinkers sees something else, we ought to listen. Church historian Martin Marty suggests that by the end of the 1950s, The revival, rather than benefiting Protestantism, actually served as the agent to usher in the post-Protestant years of American life. Rather than reviving Christianity, the revival actually took its place. It fostered an attitude toward religion, which Marty claimed became a religion in itself. 
Whereas the old shape of American religion had been mainly Protestant, the new shape became something else. Protestantism's power as a virtual monopolist in penetrating and molding the religious aspect of national culture had disappeared. For the most part, the cultural revival presented a God who was understandable and manageable. An American jolly good fellow. Rather than thinking of God as the one who sent Jesus Christ to save all humanity, including the communist, Americans tended to think of God as an American, just like them. And this led many American Christians to confuse the trappings of their culture with God's will. For these American Christians, for these Christians, women belong in the kitchen and blacks belong in menial jobs. Certainly God never intended for blacks and whites to live in the same neighborhoods. For Protestants, Christian culture reflected what they perceived to be their values. Faith from out of the clouds is born in such a way. There is first a loss. Something is changed. Something dies. And there follows a disorientation and searching. And then we hear from God from out of the cloud. At last comes that great moment when we are changed into something new. We see God in a clearer way. We become stronger in our witness of God's love. So if I'm right and the church is indeed going through a transforming experience, what must we do while we're still in the cloud trying to see our way? After all, not all of our Christian brothers and sisters feel the same way. Some predict different outcomes. Others just resign themselves to the end and some completely deny there is a cloud at all. To this, I would interject the words of Walter Wink. He said, rather than tearing at each other's throats, therefore, we should humbly admit our limitations. How do I know I am correctly interpreting God's word for us today? How do you know? Wouldn't it be wiser for Christians to lower the decibels by 95% and quietly present our beliefs, knowing full well that we might be wrong? Our job, after all, isn't to tell others where they are wrong. Neither is it to endlessly debate the meaning of the past or to, or to speculate regarding the future. What we are called to do is listen to the voice of Jesus, strain to hear it, and then obey him. The faith that we have been given is so powerful and affirming, yet at the same time, it is like driving through a fog. We must go forward believing in the good and positive, always counting on the God of love to see us through. Our humility and our hope come together to guide our witness and discipleship. Let us pray. Lord, we long to hear you. Give us the light we need for the journey ahead. Help us to keep your command to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. Watch over the church. Transfigure her into your image. As we enter into the season of Lent, we surrender to you our hopes and dreams and ask for Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.